Hello. So we're picking this up now at chapter 9 and we'll drop in at 10 um, in a while. So the title is Fight When You Must, Party When You Can, Peace Costs. Uh, so it's uh, truly the more you read Esther, the crazier the whole thing is. Um, but what we've discovered is that it's filled with templates and patterns about the way we should be living and conducting ourselves. So I've chosen two questions as the lens through which we're going to continue to discover some of these templates. The first question is, can exiles bring healing to their land? And the second question is, if so, how? So Chris and Leanne have already laid out some really powerful templates for how. And I thought seeing we had so many visitors here today, I would catch you up on what they brought to us. So from Chris, who looked into chapters one and two, the valuable templates are, we are the how of how exiles bring healing to their land is first of all, by seeking and valuing the role of a mentor by positioning ourselves for influence, by using the gifts God has given us with integrity. And she said, if we're going to be criticised at all, let it be for our faith, not for our behaviour. Really big clue we'll revisit later on when we look at the issue of compromise. And then by exercising wisdom around when and how we share our faith. Now, that's really confronting for somebody who grew up in open-air meetings. I wish somebody had told us way back then we could be more discreet. They're horrible things. Um, <laughs> but uh, I will just tell you a little story and, uh, that um, it comes to mind at this moment. Um, some of you know that a couple of years ago I had the wonderful opportunity of being in one of the persecuted lands. And I was taken by a pastor. I, we had to look like tourists and so I was taken um, into a museum and uh, shown a certain piece of literature. I'm being as vague as I can because we are recording this message and he said that was written by a Nicodemus. Um, I've actually got a photo of it but again just um, it actually doesn't come out well that's not a gifting so there's no photo um, it's more glare than wording um, as it turns out but he then said this to me we actually have many Nicodemuses in our government. Isn't that incredible? So people who've just figured out where and how they share their faith, the discretion that is needed. Very confronting when you have nothing but freedoms and you think that all can go well. Then from Leanne, who looked at chapters three to five, how by allowing trauma to cause us to identify with God and his mission, by holding a settled conviction, this is so good, that God is faithful to his promise and his promise is, I will be your God and you will be my people. Even, she said, even when we forget who we're meant to be. Such a great thought. And then by understanding this vexing matter of compromise, and again, we're going to look at that soon. So I want to set up today's message by revisiting the last verse of chapter 3. Um, it was mentioned in the Bible Project. Here we find a very telling political societal moment. Haman has manipulated the king. 
The king has agreed to his plan. They are both drunk. Well, they're drinking. We'll say they're drunk. Um, but while they drank, the, the um, chronicler tells us, Susa sank into confusion. That, to me, is where we land ourselves when we're looking at how do we bring healing to our land. Because no matter what people in authority do to our cities and our nations, we are not to separate ourselves from confused Susa. So into confused Susa enters Mordecai. He's been there. And um, a little bit of research, it looks from the commentaries that I read that he was actually a palace eunuch. And that certainly helps me understand why he seems to be forever lurking around the gardens, etc., and safely reared a niece. It's the strangest story. Um, <laughs> Into the confusions of our Australian multi-ethnic and multicultural story steps us. And we must take our place with a strong sense of both placement and stability. So again, we're heading towards chapter 9. But first, I want us to ground ourselves in three stabilising truths. So here's the first stabilising truth, that no matter how we are to walk in the context of what's going on, we hold our heads up high. We keep our dignity no matter what. So you've got the um, key phrases. I'm now going to read you the actual verses. Leviticus 26, verses 6 to 13. I'm just picking out key phrases. This is the voice of God. I will grant peace in the land. You will lie down and no one will make you afraid. You'll pursue your enemies. I will keep my covenant with you. You will walk among, I will walk among you and be your God and you'll be my people. And here it is. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. This is to be a real truth in our lives. Then the psalmist in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, again, picking out phrases, O Lord, how many are my foes, but you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and you lift up my head. To the Lord I cried aloud and he answers me from his holy hill. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. We are not to face the world we live in with all of its realities with an attitude of defeatism. And then Jesus in Luke 21 verses 20 to 28 where he details persecution and it's grisly. It's grisly. But he finishes with, when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. And that matters to us. Praise God. No room for defeatism, no matter how desperate things might be. You know, I don't know all of your stories. I'm getting to know a few. And I think it's relevant to say this, that at times when the barn is empty and the trees and the fields are barren and our dailiness may feel as if it's just one long fight, we the people of God have a higher place that we inhabit. We go through the world with our heads held high. First stabilising truth. Second stabilising truth is this. God is subtle until he decides not to be. 
And our job is to be where we're meant to be, which is in Susa, which is in confusion. And we don't leave our posts. It's not an option. So I'm saying that to build into the third stabilising truth, which I'll put up in a moment, but first a little bit of teaching, um, which has meant a lot to me as I've examined this. You know the phrase, if it please the king? I mean, people have even written books called If It Please the King. I've got one on my shelf. Um, it's used six times, always with the same Hebrew word, T-O-W-B, pronounced Tob, as far as I can tell. How they've been translated is what's interesting. The first four ways T-O-W-B is translated, it's quite soft, if it please the king. It's nearly got the sense of, I've got a thought, um, can I ask you, would you do us this favour? That's the kind of thought it's got attached to it. If it please the king, would you mind, would you think about it? But the last, and that's translated 25 times. T-O-W-B, 25 times with that. I'm calling it a softness, a gentleness. But by chapter 8, you've just seen what's happening in chapter 8. There's still no fight in chapter 8. They're very happy towards the end of it, but there's still no fight. And now there's two more, if it please the king. It's still T-O-W-B, but translated 563 times, it carries far more intensity and if I'm reading it well, it's like instead of it being said like, King, I wonder if you could do me a favour. The feeling that I get from it is, if you know what's good for you, this is what you'd better do. If it please the King. So when Sousa is confused and when we don't vacate our post, I would say that a new level of authority is in the palace and it's not so subtle. So third stabilising truth, if God knows when to be subtle and when to declare himself loudly, so can we. You know, when I was just revisiting my notes again this morning, it occurred to me that some of us need to apply this to our homes. Some of you have more spiritual authority in your homes than you realise. Um, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. You hold your head held high. You don't have to go into the presence of the king, cowered over, wondering if he's going to lop your head off because you've dared turn up. It's with confidence that we can approach the throne of grace and find the help that we need in our time of need. Good, stabilising truths. Hold our head high, even in exile. Sometimes his presence is subtle, sometimes it isn't. We can be subtle and sometimes not so subtle too. Well, we've finally arrived at the action-packed and the most confronting, chapter 9. Now, there are 32 verses, and I'm not going to read 32 verses. I'm going to sum them up with just verses 1 and 2. So we're given the date, the time that this annihilation is happening, and it says this in Esther 9, verses 1 and 2. On this day, the enemy of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of, the, of King Xerxes, Ahasuerus, to attack those seeking destruction no one could stand against them. So that's what's happening in chapter 9. A lot of people are going to die and it's going to be ugly. 
Further into the chapter, we've also got a lot of instructions um, from Esther and Mordecai regarding the partying and the feasting that is going to happen called Purim and it's happening to this day. So we've had templates from chapters 1 and 2. We've had templates from 3, 4 and 5. What templates can we get from 9? Here they are. From chapter 9, what does it look like for us? as people in exile. How do we do this? How do we bring healing to our land? Well, the first template or pattern is we do it by taking personal responsibility. The Jews fought their own battles. It reminds me of the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem. Um, each one built the bit of wall outside of their home. Take responsibility. It's not going to be done for us. And here's the reason why the world needs us to take responsibility. It doesn't realise it needs us to take responsibility. It's because we understand the nature of the battle. We know where the real enemy is. The second template is that we do it by functioning with grace and not in weakness. I'll explain grace more in a moment. We don't function in weakness. They gathered themselves together in their cities and protected themselves. It was a defensive move, which is why I'm using the word grace. It was a defensive move, not an aggressive one. So they weren't weak. They were going to get some muscle going behind it, but they, they had meticulous instructions about who they were to go after. And I just want to say this, that acts done in the name of the Lord that are violent and militant and even predatory bring a reproach to the kingdom. But a determined defence of that which is rightfully ours is entirely justified. And I want to speak to parents who are watching children, young and old. Here's just how I live my life. You touch my kids, I'll break your face. That's, that's it. We know the nature of the battle. Third, they did it by functioning in unity. They gathered together. Um, the Latin phrase, vis unitar fortior, means forces act most powerfully when combined, which is exactly what the word says, that one puts a thousand to, fight, to flight, but two put 10,000 to flight. Number four, it's worth lingering on this one just for a moment. They did so by identifying the right enemy. They killed those who were armed against them. Now, I've listened to audio Esther several times. I've read Esther many times. I can't see that they, they took out the kids and the women and the elderly. They took out the people who were armed against them. So they identified the right enemy. And I, I found this that I think is beneficial for those of us who are just squeamish about the, the, you know, death runs all through the Old Testament. It's like one genocide after another. So this is from Warren Worsby of the Bible Exposition Commentary of the Old Testament. The total number of the slain was 75,000 out of a population of about 100 million. But the fact that more than 75,000 people were prepared to slaughter defenceless Jews shows how many of the king's people hated God's people. And the fact that these people were even willing to attack when they knew the Jews could not protect themselves is proof that anti-Semitism was very strong throughout the empire. The critics say it was wrong for the Jews to kill 75,000 would-be murderers. Would it have been better if the 75,000 Persians had killed, killed 10 times that number of Jews? 
I just leave that with you. I just want to say we do need to understand the nature of the battle and we do need to know how to identify the right enemy. Not everything out there is our enemy. I mean, in my childhood, lipstick and nail polish, they were right on the top, top of the list. <laughs> I, I read this. I hope you like it. It's nearly relevant. Um, <laughs> uh, so the story goes that there's a hen with her chicken by the River Ganges. And uh, the hen sees an eagle swirling overhead. So she grabs her chicken and thrusts it into a pile of manure to keep it safe. But while it's in the pile of manure, it squawks. And the eagle hears the squawk and swoops down and gets the chicken and flies away. The moral of the story, not everybody who gets you in it is your enemy and not everybody who gets you out of it is your friend. Is that nearly relevant? Is that nearly relevant? I don't know. And then number five. <laughs> My by being my, after you've had 75,000 people die, you've got to have just a lift, I think, in the atmosphere. <laughs> by being mindful of the needy and giving the oppressed the opportunity to live with nobility. Um, if I've read it correctly, that they didn't take out the women and children, how right that they also chose not to do what they were allowed to do, which is take out the plunder. Because if they hadn't left goods and food behind, it would have been better if they had killed the women and children and elderly because they would have starved to death or been unable to buy their way through life. So we must enable the oppressed and the weak to live with dignity and I think the church is ticking a whole lot of good boxes on that. There's a great deal that's being done for the betterment of those who are oppressed. Praise God in exile, the church is doing well. And we're still in chapter 9, but now we need to find a few more templates for how to behave when we are in victory. Um, this is just setting us up towards the next part of this message. First of all, we are to live generously towards each other. We're allowed to party. They had a day of feasting and joy where the prime objective was laughter. And I would say this, that one of the greatest defeats that Satan can ever wreak on our lives is robbing us of our joy. And then they are allowed to rest when the battle's done. Um, if all we ever do is fight, we run a great risk of moving from servanthood to slavery. And I say that because I said to you earlier, we really do need to bring under the microscope this matter of compromise um, because it's a troubling word to me. It's a troubling word to most Christians because it suggests some sort of diluting of the gospel. History gives this amazing coda to the Feast of Purim. Jewish, Jewish writers acknowledge that this feast is commonly celebrated among them with gluttony, drunkenness, and an excess of riot. The Talmud expressly says that in the Feast of Purim, a man should drink till he knows not the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. Wow. Another little lovely Latin phrase, corruptio optimae est pessima, which means what is best becomes, when corrupted, the worst. I just want to say this not in any way to um, make a too big a deal of it, but in context, I would say the past 20 to 25 years of the church, we've been quite self-indulgent in the Western church, and I think we've taken a lot of things too far. 
from strange manifestations to some need to look and act like any other citizen and call it relating. Social media is as much a vehicle for narcissism for Christian men and women as it is for unbelievers. But then paradoxically, I think we've been quick to judge what is and what isn't freedom in Christ. So last week, at the end of her message, Leanne mentioned Lauren Daigle. And uh, I'd never heard the name. So I spent some time Googling um, this young woman and um, found her on um, a podcast of her singing on The Ellen Show. The most extraordinary song called You're Still Rolling Stones. The words to that song are salvation in the most beautifully expressed way. And here she is singing it on The Ellen Show. Now, before I got there, not knowing what I was clicking on, I clicked on one thing and up came two white guys who were pulling her to bits because she's losing her Christian audience now that she's gone on Ellen, who is openly gay. Thanks for mentioning it. Hadn't picked it. <laughs> then, because by now I'm just fuming, got, you know, it's like, <sighs> I clicked on another one. And this was a guy whose face never came up. Just all I heard was his voice. And he also, he's so disappointed with Lauren. Um, and uh, had several scriptures that she's violating. <laughs> they came up on the screen. One of them was her appearance. And I must say, he lingered for a long time on the bits he didn't like. <laughs> um, so, so Lauren gets her CDs given by, by Ellen to everyone in Ellen's audience, and Lord knows how far afield that good news is going, um, but we should be pleased that God still has Nasal Guy on his team. Um, I think we need to talk a lot about compromise still. Graham concluded last week with some confronting questions. He said, what do we compromise and when do we compromise in order to engage with the world around us and then when don't we? Um, so a good scripture for us to have, we've certainly got to get something up, don't we, as a lens on this stuff. And I think Proverbs 14 is a great scripture. Proverbs 14, 34, 35. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sins are a disgrace to any people. A king delights in a wise servant, but a shameful servant incurs his wrath. That's a pretty simple directive, I think. Pretty simple barometer about how we are to conduct ourselves as exiles in an alien culture. We are really to live upright lives. And I put it to you like this. We can party, but we must never lose perspective about the enemy and that we'll make it through if we know when we're dining with Haman or obeying Mordecai. I began by talking about the stabilising factor of what God does in us when he is lifting up our heads, that we're not to walk coward and defeated and and um, with confusion. Uh, we are to live in Susa and we are to live boldly. So here's a question. What would prevent us from living boldly as exiles? 
And I want to suggest to you that the answer might have something to do with the nature of our relationship with the king. So I'm coming towards the end of this message and I want to cycle right back around to the start and talk to you about something that I think is um, relevant and I'm going to call it the concubine syndrome. You'll remember that a lot of young women were gathered together um, to take their turn with the king before he would decide on which one was to become queen. And they're there to take their, when it's their turn to go into the king, they can take something that is uniquely them. Um, and I'm in a sweet kind of way, you know, it's probably the only moment in their sad lives when they had any sense of individuality. So one by one, these women spent a night with the king. And then after that, they returned to a different place in the palace grounds. At that point, they know they've got no hope of becoming queen. They're no longer virgins, and now they're concubines, which for us, I think we can safely say, is an unsatisfactory title over an unsatisfactory life. They're not necessarily called for again, even though for the rest of their lives they can live in hope. For us... Praise God with this side of the cross. It's meant to be different. When we begin our journey of intimacy with the king, we must come empty-handed. We don't bring anything with us. Nothing is going to work. We come, as the beautiful old hymn said, just as I am, without one plea but that your blood was shed for me. There's a disconnect with God's desire for intimacy with us when we come with something in our hands that we won't discard. How about our victimhood, which was mentioned by Chris at the start in the victim culture we live in, our victimhood, maybe our impressive disciplines, maybe God's lucky to get us. Go the nasal guy. (laughs) Our disappointments, our angers, our insecurities, our inadequacies, that stuff, that handful of stuff will always hinder intimacy. And I wonder, this concubine syndrome, is it when we've had enough of a touch from the king to know we're no good out there, but we're not getting much in here either. We've still got our reasons in our hand. And while we see others in the throne room, we feel that we're not quite there. Um, We sometimes can find ourselves sitting around with other concubines and complaining about how things aren't as they should be. And every day we wake up hoping that somebody will meet our needs and that somebody will tell us what to do. And maybe, maybe we're in a meeting somewhere and we have another shot at touching the king and letting him touch us, but we don't have heart change because we've still got our stuff in our hand. So I just want to say to you, if you are Christian, but you don't have any sense of being fully in love with the king, knowing that he's fully in love with you, that it's time to let that relationship consummate at a higher level. He gives us his anointing every day. We're anointed with fresh oil every day. There are mercies new every day. That's how we live in the throne room. We're made to live in relationship moment by moment. Well, let's go back to the story for one final fascinating and stirring and challenging facet of the life of God's people who are in exile.
Peace has come, but not without a cost. By chapter 10, there is peace, but what a cost. And we've discovered that in chapter 9. Xerxes is still the king. He's still imposing taxes. Mordecai is now second in rank. And here we have one final challenging pattern or template. Xerxes doesn't become a Christian. There's no record of that. Well, I suppose technically they didn't have Christians back then, but he certainly didn't own um, Yahweh. People are needed in Brisbane who know how to mix and mingle with people of high rank, working for the good of all, even though Zuzer is still very confused and not everything is squeaky clean. That's the template. How do we wind this up? This ancient and disturbing, hair-raising story, what on earth does it tell us? Well, I've spent most of this sermon answering the how question, but the first question I had on the screen was, can we? Can we in exile heal our land? And it won't surprise you to hear me say, yes, we can. We can live with integrity in a world that consistently seeks to pull us out of the realm of spiritual dominion. We simply have to know when to fight, who to fight, how to fight, and when not to fight. And then we need to allow the joy of the Lord to be our easily accessed source of celebration. Josh, Chris and Leanne have each referenced the invisible hand of God that steers the entire story. And he is steering our story still today. Here's Alpha and Omega. He's beginning and end. Which bit doesn't he know of our lives? He will always be true to his character. And his character is only good and only just. So we've come to the end of Esther in our Way of the Exile series. And the book is certainly challenging. Um, but it encourages me with this, that until the appointed time, until the appointed time, we surely can seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which we find ourselves, knowing according to Jeremiah, if it prospers, we prosper. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word holds and this strange, glamorous, fascinating book um, gives us just such a window into how we've got to shift ourselves from exactitudes. We have to shift ourselves from needing everything neat in a straight row before we feel in victory. God, help us to find victory in the middle of the shambles. Lord, I pray for anyone sitting here nursing a life that doesn't make sense. And for anyone sitting here who's going, actually, that concubine thing, that's me. I want it to work, but it hasn't. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that your arm is not so short that it can't save. We thank you that you know exactly how to get us to where you intended us to be. Thank you for that. But, oh, God, we need your help. We need your help. Every day we need you to guide us, to pick us up, to take us to the next moment.
Lord, may the voice of Holy Spirit ever be in our ears saying, and here's the thing, do this. Here's the thing, do this. And may we be eager to listen. May we be people who lean into your spirit. Lord, I pray for people sitting here whose fight is quite um, immediate. Lord, the the financial battles, the relational battles, um, health battles. Oh, God, again, help us know the enemy, know how to fight, when to fight and when not to fight. Um, Lord, move us away from having an aggressive posture towards the world that we inhabit and deluge us with grace levels that make way for us as we carry you. Well, by the time we get to the end of this whole series of understanding what it's like to be believers in a land that's voting no on you. Most of Australia's voting no on you and we're holding the banner, Lord. We'll hold the flag. Just show us how. Lord, don't let anyone turn away from you because we just didn't get it right. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by Cornerstone Christian Resources, please visit the Cornerstone website.